Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. This week on The West Block. Canadian military personnel sent into nursing homes here in Ontario have observed shocking conditions. Long-term care. It's gut-wrenching. And reading those reports was the hardest thing I've done as Premier. City's needs. COVID-19 is the greatest threat that our city has faced in this generation. It continues to take lives, and we know that it is present across our city. Then, China. Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou lost the first round of her attempt to avoid extradition to the United States. I gave the Prime Minister four opportunities to condemn the attack on the freedom of the people of Hong Kong by the government of China. He refused. Uh, with hundreds of thousands of Canadians living in Hong Kong, we have a vested interest in its stability and prosperity. This past week, we've heard disturbing reports about the conditions in long-term care homes. Meanwhile, south of the border, horrific images of the moments before the death of George Floyd and the violent reaction that followed. Meanwhile, here at home, allegations of police misconduct. And all this is happening while municipal leaders are asking for more money to keep their services going because of COVID-19. Joining me now is the mayor of Canada's largest city, Toronto, Mayor John Tory. Thank you for making time to talk to us, Mayor. Pleasure, Mercedes. I know you've been very busy dealing with COVID-19, but also on your radar, allegations against Toronto police of misconduct. These come at the same time as we are seeing those devastating images coming out of the United States in relationship to the death of George Floyd. What are your thoughts on these media stories we say, we're seeing and the concerns about racism that we are facing both here in Canada and in the United States? Well, I mean, racism is a reality in, in you know, both countries. Certainly in Toronto, we set up an anti-black racism action plan because we acknowledged the fact there was anti-black racism in the city. But uh, when it comes to any particular incident, uh, most of all the ones that have happened very recently, there is an independent process that is in place that is now working to ensure that the answers that are sought by the family, and this is a tragedy no matter what way you look at it, but the family is seeking answers. So am I. So are the police. Uh, so is the community. And so in that sense, this process will produce those answers. And I think the best thing we can do as Canadians, I think, are want to do is to await the outcome of that process, let an investigation take its course so that the facts and conclusions of an independent investigator are on the table. And that will hopefully provide, as tragic as this thing is, no matter what, it will provide some, some answers uh, for us all. Mayor Tory, I want to ask you about long-term care homes. I know that they are a provincial responsibility, but many of the ones that we're talking about in terms of that military report that was so disturbing are located in or around the GTA. What were your thoughts on that report, and what do you think needs to be done to ensure that people all across Canada, but especially in your city of Toronto, are receiving the care that they deserve? Well, I mean, this is a scandal, uh, no matter you know which way you cut it, and no matter... Um, you know, when it happened, it happened to become uncovered in, in the time of a pandemic, uh, because what we have here is a, a failure to meet a standard of care most of us would expect for our parents and grandparents and the most fragile of elderly people. And, you know, we own 10 uh, long-term care residences, the city of Toronto does, and ours have been found by objective studies that have been done to provide a higher level of care, but still not perfect. And so I think that as you sort of go through the spectrum of the long-term care uh, industry, if I can call it that, there is lots of uh, 
uh, lots of things that need to be improved. And I think what's going to be required here is what I understand we're going to get, which is a transparent, uh, fully inclusive. And by that, I mean you have past employees, past uh, uh, family members and so on of people who have been in these residences to come forward and tell their story so that we can get right to the bottom of something that clearly uh, we have fallen short on as a society. And I expect that's true in other parts of Canada, not just in Toronto or in Ontario. We happen to have a lot of these residences because we're the biggest city in the country, as you said, in the biggest region in the country. So there are a lot of questions to be answered. Uh, there are a lot of people that need to be heard from. We have to do better. Uh, and I'm sure that's where the province is going with what I hope will be a very transparent, very open inquiry that will get right to the bottom of this and get all the answers we all need. I do want to get to funding for cities, but just before you said something interesting, when you mentioned that the homes that are owned by the cities were not found to be lacking in the same way, do you think that the answer here is having governments take over the homes instead of allowing privately run homes? Well, look, I'm a person who believes in the free enterprise system, but there's also no question but that when you are running something for profit, um, you know, there's uh, more attention to the costs and so on. And that might have, and this is why we need to find out in, a, uh, in an objective uh, analysis of this, why we need to find out, was there in fact a lower standard of care that was offered or is offered in privately run long-term care as opposed to that that is run either by the nonprofit sector or the public sector? And I don't know what the answer to that is. I just know the objective examination has shown, and, I, and I'm proud of this, although we had some problems of our own during the pandemic, but I'm proud of the fact that it says that the ones that are run in our case by the city uh, are providing a, a better uh, overall result for people and that's what we want don't we want to make sure that our seniors our most fragile elderly people are looked after in a to a standard that we would expect in this uh, wealthy country of ours let's talk about money for cities covid19 has put a tremendous burden on so many levels of government including municipal ones you don't have riders on transit you don't have the same tax base as a provincial or federal government there's been discussion about shutting down rec centers hockey rinks parks all kinds of things if there isn't more money how much money do you need from the federal government and how quickly do you need it well, I almost hesitate to use the Toronto example because, first of all, I know nobody in the country feels sorry for Toronto, but secondly, <laughs> because the numbers are so huge. But in our case, we've fallen short, or we will have fallen short by the end of the year, $1.5 billion. And you may say, well, how could you possibly come to a number like that? Well, if you take as a fact, because it is, we're losing 20-some-odd million dollars per week on a transit system that normally carries 1.8 million people a day and is carrying a fraction of that, then you start to understand how the numbers can add up. We're already 10 or 12 weeks into this, and that's $23 million each of those weeks. So they're big numbers, and that's true of cities across the country to a different scale or another. And the other thing about cities is they don't have the latitude to raise money in different ways other than normally through the property tax. And most in most cases around the country, they don't have the right to run a deficit, which I think, by the way, is a good thing, and so do my fellow mayors. So therefore... Um, we need help. And if we're going to be a part, as I know we can be, in fact, as I know we must be, if we're going to be a part of a robust, effective recovery that really gets this country back on its feet, the cities of Canada, starting with Toronto, I will say, 20% of the GDP in the Toronto area, we've got to be on our feet and stable and, and able to focus on getting the recovery done as opposed to focusing on how to scrape up enough money to keep the transit running or uh, provide childcare for people. So it's a big uh, challenge for us and we need the help of the other governments, both provincial and federal, to get uh, that challenge met. Mayor Tory, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time and your insights and we'll catch up with you again soon. I hope so. Thanks, Mercedes. Bye-bye. Uh, there were fairly high expectations of, of uh, Madam Mung's release very quickly. That isn't coming through. And so 
uh, I think that in the hot and sour soup that is the Canada-China relationship, this has added a little bit more vinegar to that soup. That was UBC China expert Paul Evans on the ruling by the BC Supreme Court that clears the way for extradition hearings for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou to go forward. It has been met with recriminations and warnings from the Chinese government. Joining me now to discuss what happens next are two members of the House of Commons Canada-China Relations Committee, Conservative Garnet Jenis and Rob Oliphant, who is the Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Rob, let's start with you. I have here in front of me the two statements that were made by the Chinese embassy following this. Uh, and I'd like to read just a little bit it out to, to you and to our viewers. It describes the whole case as a grave political incident. It calls on Canada to immediately release Miss Meng Wanzhou to allow her to return safely to China, not to go further down the wrong path, as they put it. And it also warns about there being consequences and continuous harm to China-Canada relations describing this as a political incident and then making what seemed to be threats. Do you find this acceptable? The, the path that we're on is not a political path. The path that we're on is one of an independent judiciary. Uh, we have a, an extradition process that uh, we will continue to uh, follow. We, we are a, a, a country based on the rule of law. We have extradition agreements with countries around the world, and we'll have an open and transparent extradition process. Uh, the, the decision by the Supreme Court of British Columbia is the decision by the Supreme Court. There's no political interference. Uh, it is it is part of the, the multi-step process of an extradition process. And uh, the court has spoken, and we don't comment on that. Uh, the, the process will continue. It will take steps, and we will stand by that. We will be firm um, on the things that Canadians believe in, and that's the, uh, the rule of law, and, and that is the independence of the judiciary. This process will con will continue, and countries, all other countries, must respect that, and we will stand by that. Uh, we will not be bullied. We will we will stand firm um, on our system, and uh, there is no political interference whatsoever. Garnet, how do you think Canada should respond to these kinds of threats? And I know your party believes in a tougher position, but I want to be very specific. Does that mean bringing in sanctions against China? Does it mean denying some of their imports? Does it mean denying Chinese? tourism coming to this country what do you think should be done in response okay well let, let's let's parse out a few things uh, first of all in terms of uh, the the Wang Zhou case uh, much of what what uh, Rob said I agree with about the importance of the rule of law and about this being a legal matter and a question of our international obligations I would just say I hope the government is consistent and sends consistent signals uh, on that because we have had some mixed signals in the past such as when uh, ambassador McCallum was uh, uh, was confusing the issue through some of these the things he said uh, you had uh, you had you you've You've had others uh, on the sort of liberal side of things that have that have said things. People like former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien uh, that have really not been helpful to our our need to send clear signals about respect uh, for the rule of law. Uh, but in terms of response to other things that are going on, response to the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, the, the, the first things that we should be doing uh, is have the government make clear principled statements, for instance, condemning uh, the, the violation of international law and human rights that's taking place in, in Hong Kong. Um, 
And also, we need to have the Parliamentary Committee on Canada-China Relations able to meet. Uh, the Liberals opposed the creation of that committee, uh, and they opposed it being able to meet virtually, which is what many committees are doing uh, during during these times. So that's not the, the, the final answer, but those are critical first steps, uh, strong statements and the engagement of parliamentarians in order to have a response. I, I, think, I think as we move forward from that, uh, Canadian leadership in multilateral fora to have a a, a, a strong collaboration on pushing forward measures that deter these kinds of violations of human rights and international law is very important. Uh, we saw that under Stephen Harper after the Russian invasion of Crimea. Uh, Canada spoke clearly in a principled lay way, and we, we led a response uh, among like-minded countries. Uh, Canada could be doing so again, uh, but but I do think we see a lot of weakness and naivete from this government when it comes to engaging with China. We've seen that uh, from the beginning, uh, and uh, and we haven't seen anything like a, a principled response to what's happened in Hong Kong. Okay, Garner, I'm not sure that that's specific on what you would actually do to deal with China, but I do want to go back to you, Rob, um, and ask you, when these statements by the Chinese government, which very clearly is planning to take some kind of action against Canada, and we don't know if that will be potentially scooping up more Canadian citizens who are in China or if it will be economic, but they, they are warning there will be some kind of retaliation by the sounds of it. Right here on this show, the Chinese ambassador clearly linked the cases of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig to that of Meng Wanzhou. Your government is still considering allowing Huawei to operate in this country. Why would you still be considering that? Why not just say no with what's going on? Canada will stand up, and the Canadian government is going to stand up for uh, Canadians' interests. And we'll do that uh, respectfully, but we'll do that strongly. There's absolutely nothing weak or anything naive about our approach to China. Uh, I've been in opposition. I know what that's like. You can say anything you want. You can do anything you want. We will take a strong and principled stand on everything, whether it's uh, our evaluation of, of Huawei and whether or not it is in the best interest of Canada and Canadians. That is a tech technical uh, study that is being done. It's uh, but, not done But Mr. Oliphant, that, that study has been looked at, and CSIS and CSE had differing views. You don't have bureaucratic unity on how to move forward, and it's ultimately a political decision. Why, if the Chinese government is threatening us over Huawei, would we allow them to operate in this country? Why, why would you even consider that? We'll take every everything. What we are doing, and we've been very clear, we will have a, uh, a position of principled engagement. We'll have a strategic response on areas where we agree. And we'll have uh, a, a, a very strong response on areas where we don't agree. Uh, decisions will be made without that uh, political overlay. We are going to do this to see what is in the best interest of Canada and Okay, Canadians. I want to give Bob Garnett a chance to get in at the very end here because we're almost out of time. Garnett, go ahead. Well, sure. Just, just very clearly, from our perspective, uh, no to Huawei and no to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, the, 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 the words the government are saying just aren't being matched by by very reasonable policy measures. Uh, Huawei, the Asian Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank, uh, this isn't so much about retaliation, this is about just things that are in our interest. Sending hundreds of millions of dollars to the Chinese government to support uh, their uh, neo-colonial projects uh, within Asia, that's not in, in Canada's interest. I know there's so much more that we could say about this topic, but we do have to wrap it up there. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. I think it's important to support the, the, uh, uh, the citizens of Hong Kong, including 300,000 Canadians, uh, who really uh, want to see the 
one country, two systems uh, approach to Hong Kong and China continue. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Canada, along with the UK, Australia and the US, are condemning China for violating an agreement that gives autonomy to Hong Kong under something called the One Government, Two Systems Agreement with China. So what does the new Chinese security legislation mean for Hong Kong? Late last week, I spoke to Emily Lau. She's the former chair of the Hong Kong Democratic Party. Here's that conversation. Joining me now is Emily Lau, former chair of the Hong Kong Democratic Party. Thank you so much for making time for us, Ms. Lau. Thank you. Can you tell me what the situation is right now in Hong Kong with China bringing this law in and what it will mean for your beloved Hong Kong? Well, of course, you probably have heard that the China's rubber stamp parliament passed the proposal to make this law uh, on Thursday. And now uh, the details will be worked out in the coming weeks. And this is a Chinese national law on uh, security, national security, which will be foisted on Hong Kong. Uh, they are creating offenses of uh, subversion and of uh, liaison with uh, foreign forces, uh, with terrorism and with secession. Uh, which I think people in Canada should know, the people from Quebec. So, and these offenses, the details have not yet been worked out, but they could be very, very broad. So people in Hong Kong, many of us are very frightened that it could uh, restrict our freedom of expression, including my ability to talk to you right now, and also uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, academic freedom, all these things to do with the mind, because they, in the mainland, they penalize people for exercising free speech. So, and the thing is, this law is going to be foisted on us without consulting us. How, I mean, how, how really, how offensive, how terrible. And our mini constitution, the basic law, says, yes, we have to legislate on our own, on a law on national security, which of course we failed to do since Hong Kong became part of China in 1997 because the people were very worried. And now suddenly Beijing, the Communist Party, uh, they have lost their patience. They say, oh, you, can't, you don't want to do it? We do it for you. And it's just, they just sprung it on us out of the blue and bang, it's done. They're going to work out the details. So people are very, very concerned. And most important of all, because it's a Chinese mainland law, which is going to be foisted on us. So this is going to be like driving a truck through China's policy of one country, two systems, which should last from 97 for 50 years until 2047. Under that, we will be separate from mainland China. But now if Chinese law is going to foist it on us and national security people will probably be deployed to Hong Kong to implement the law and they could arrest Hong Kong people and they could even take Hong Kong people back to mainland China for trial. And in mainland China, crimes of national security 
they are tried in camera. The defendant will not be able to meet with the family members or with the lawyers, and they can be locked up for, for many years, even without trial. So this is the state of affair in Hong Kong, and that's why we are so anxious and terrified. Emily, how do you feel personally? Because you have been an advocate for democracy. We have spoken before in November. Here we are just a few months later, but I wonder if a few months from now, you will be able to have this kind of a conversation with a journalist. Well, I, I don't know, my dear, you know, but we live under communist rule. So it, this is the harsh reality. And the trouble is the British government delivered the Hong Kong people to communist rule in 1997 without giving us any protection. At that time, I was like a journalist. I was a journalist like you. And I put the question to then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. I said, Prime Minister, you sign an agreement with China promising to deliver over 5 million people into the hands of a communist dictatorship. Is that morally defensible? Or is it really true that in international politics, the highest form of morality is one's own national interest? And Maggie said, don't worry, everything's gonna be okay. Everyone is happy with the agreement. And you, Emily Lau, you may be a solitary exception. I can assure you now, I'm not a solitary exception. And I think the way Britain abandoned her own citizens is disgraceful. What will happen next in Hong Kong? When we last talked, you'd said, hopefully that the international community speaking out would be enough to stop China from advancing further. That has not been the case. Do you think that now there will be violence or there will be an uprising by the people of Hong Kong? Well, I think the Hong Kong people will continue to protest and you've seen them protesting just yesterday and the day before. And some of them are not afraid. Many have been beaten up very badly by the police and over 8,000 have been arrested. And so it is a very, very terrible scene but many of them, particularly the young people, they will not allow themselves to be intimidated. So the Hong Kong people will continue to protest, and I hope they will do it in a non-violent way. But we still call on the international community to help us. Canada, you know, there are 300,000 Canadian citizens living and working in Hong Kong, and hundreds of Canadian companies operating here. So I certainly hope the Canadian government, the US, the British, the uh, Australian, I hope they will all speak out and they all have their citizens here. It's not as if they have, they're just doing it for us. They should be doing it for their own citizens. Just imagine how many aircraft carriers or Boeing does Canada have to send to Hong Kong if it needs to mount an evacuation? And of course, we don't want to see the Hong Kong people like the Vietnamese boat people that we saw in the last century floating out to sea. And Hong Kong was the first port of call. We accepted them and helped them to get a resettlement. We don't want to see that happening again. 
But I hope Canada will open its doors to Hong Kong immigrants. And you know, Hong Kong people are very good immigrants, but while we are here, we will fight. But we want the international community to stand with us. Emily, would you like to see Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Canada give people from Hong Kong refugee status? Well, I don't, I don't hope that the situation would deteriorate to becoming refugees. But of course, nobody knows. But I hope that if you can liberalize your immigration policy even a bit more for Hong Kong people, because they would love to apply to come to Canada or to go somewhere where it's free, where it's safe. And if, if the Canadian government, if your parliament would do that, I think we would be very happy. But refugees, wow, if we come to a day when there are Hong Kong boat people and refugees, um, maybe like in the last century, the United Nations may have to hold a big meeting to see how to resettle the refugees from Hong Kong. But we don't want that to happen, my dear friend. We just want to be free and to be safe and to live in Hong Kong. So we hope the international community will tell the barbaric Communist Party in Beijing to cool it. And also, we're not trying to fight for independence or secession. No, we just want China to keep the promise in the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration. Leave us alone, let us have a high degree of autonomy, have personal safety, rule of law and freedom, and, demol and develop democracy. As you know, there's been a lot of tension between the Canadian government and the Chinese government over the arrest of Meng Wanzhou here in Canada, and of course, uh, China's detention of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. The Canadian court in BC made a decision that Meng Wanzhou's extradition trial could continue, that there was a basis for double criminality there. The Chinese government has been warning there will be consequences for Canada. What do you think the future looks like for Canada there, Ms. Lau? Well, I think the Canadians have great respect for the rule of law and independence of the judiciary. And I think that's exactly what your prime minister has said. So I think you should carry on as decent, upstanding Canadians, upholding your own core values. If other bigger powers act like a bully, I don't think the Canadians will allow themselves to be bullied, especially when you know your courts are doing the right thing. These are the things you have upheld all your life. So maybe you'll go through a difficult patch. I understand the two Michaels, it's very sad. And because over there in mainland China, there's complete lawlessness. Well, they could arrest other people too and hold them hostage. And that's how nasty they are. And that's what the international community is coming to realize, that you try to engage China and think that they will enter the international community as a law-abiding, as a responsible member. But that was all a mistake. And now the French, the French foreign minister recently said, oh, uh, we should not uh, care about Hong Kong. Uh, we should uh, just uh, do our French thing. I think that's ridiculous. We live in a global village. If there are values that we share, I think we should stand with each other. Now, 
we want you to stand with Hong Kong. But of course, tiny Hong Kong will stand with Canada. Emily, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.